Hello, my name is James Crabtree. I'm the executive director of the IISS Asia, recording here in Singapore, and I am today's guest host on Sound Strategic. The IISS celebrated the 20th anniversary of its Shangri-La Dialogue this past weekend, underlining the importance of in-person defense diplomacy in our region and beyond. And so on today's podcast, we're going to talk about what just happened, who gave the best speeches, what were the most interesting talking points. And to go through that, I'm joined by a star cast of my IISS colleagues, Dr. Bastian Gigerich, who's the director of the Defense and Military Analysis Program in London, Nigel Gould Davis, Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia, normally in London, although presently in Thailand, Evan Laxmana, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia Military Modernization in our own office in Singapore, and Virla Noens, also in Singapore, Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Indo-Pacific Defense and Strategy. Welcome, everybody. So, Bastian, let me turn to you first. Probably the main theme of the Shangri-La Dialogue this year, as with last year, is the relationship between the United States and China. We had the speech from Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Defense Secretary, on Saturday, then the speech from General Li Shangfu on Sunday morning. I think it would be fair to say that the second speech was the one that people have poured over with greater intensity. This was a new minister. He had some rather intriguing things to say. So what struck you about his remarks and and maybe uh, Lloyd Austin as well? Thanks, James. I think one has to just start with the point that while there was clear interest from the US side, there wasn't actually a formal bilateral Uh, This time, Secretary Austin said on stage that dialogue shouldn't be a reward. The time to talk is any time. The time to talk is now. Uh, And as we know, there was, uh, and it was very lively on on Twitter, at least, there was a toast, there was a handshake uh, between Austin and his counterpart, General Li Shangfu. But but Austin said on stage, this cannot replace an actual meeting and conversation. And so in that context, I would say uh, Li Shangfu's speech was in some ways relentless and unyielding uh, in, in presenting the, the position of the People's Republic of China. But I don't think it was actually overly aggressive in doing so. Some of the reporting, some of the tweeting, some of the social media activity following his speech, I thought was a little bit overblown, suggesting that this was China's moment, you know, akin to Vladimir Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007. I didn't think it was as dramatic as that. Uh, I think it was actually maybe Li Shengfu actually tried to avoid too much that would significantly raise the temperature further. And and the one thing I would pull out, I thought it, it, it was, in fact, to me at least, uh, remarkable that, that Li Shangfu asked for the floor for a final comment, just as John Chipman was in the process of wrapping up the session, and that he asked for the floor again. To me, it felt like a signal that uh, Li perhaps wanted to end the session on a, on a positive note, suggesting that he was open to further conversation uh, and debate. And I thought that was an interesting moment. Uh, still, overall, the interaction between the two great powers will have done little to calm the nerves, I guess, uh, of the many middle and smaller powers affected by the absence of a more direct and proactive defense diplomacy between those two big powers through personal exchange. That'll be the feeling that lingers for many of them. Virna, you're a practiced China watcher. I mean, it was an interesting speech compared to his predecessor last year, a little bit less performative, less outgoing. He came across as cerebral at times, but he also had a particular quote at the end, which caught everybody's attention. He said, when friends come to visit, or he said, we have a phrase in China, when friends come to visit, we greet them with fine wine, but when jackals and wolves come, we greet them with shotguns, which uh, got a lot of people's attention. 
How did you judge the, the middle ground of, of this speech between perhaps those extremes? That was a great quote. Of course, another great quote of his was, uh, you know, as we say in China, mind your own business. Um, so I think that really pointed towards a, a speech of two tones, uh, of two messages, one for the region with whom China is clearly trying to speak to and, and find greater cooperation with uh, and, and build trust with, and then one for the United States. Uh, and we saw throughout the speech that, you know, the level of trust is extremely low. The United States and China painted one another as bullies. The United States, for its effort, tried to uh, clarify very clearly that the one China policy, which is, of course, an area of great sensitivity for China, that that policy is constant and firm, uh, as Secretary of Defense put it. But then I thought it was interesting that for a speech by uh, General Li Shangfu that was meant to be about a positive vision for the region, um, you know, to, to present this new global security initiative uh, that, that Xi Jinping has launched uh, himself. It was difficult, I think, for countries in the region to perhaps really buy into it, to amongst the, the words of, of tension vis-a-vis -vis the United States to really understand and, and see what um, China was offering. And of course, we saw that afterwards in the Q&A as well, where uh, some questions pointed towards uh, the fact that China was not walking the talk, that actions and words did not match. And there, I think, uh, you know, there may have been some uh, buy-in from the region, but a lot of questions as well. And China will, of course, be working very hard, I think, from here on forth to try and convince countries in the region that it has benign ambitions uh, and that it uh, is seeking to uh, really be a brother, a part of the family in the Asia Pacific, as opposed to, as uh, some countries fear, a country with um, hegemonic or uh, desire for a, a greater uh, dominance in the region. So Evan, let me come to you on, on that point. These speeches at the Shangri-La Dialogue are not generally aimed at uh, um, persuading implacable opponents. They're aimed at persuading middle ground powers in Southeast Asia. So in a sense, the way to judge the speech is how will it have gone down in Indonesia or the Philippines or Vietnam? One of the things that he said uh, was that uh, in an exchange in Q&A that Chinese ships and aircraft never go near other countries' airspace and waters, um, a reference to the fact that the United States uh, does tend to, to do that in the Taiwan Strait. That didn't go down very well with a few of uh, our delegates from countries like the Philippines. But in general, how did you think his speech will have gone down with its intended audience in Southeast Asia? Uh, I think there's two sets of issues that Southeast Asian states were looking for in terms of both the U.S. as well as the Chinese speech, in terms of, first, the expectations. Uh, we've heard and seen from Secretary Austin four times before. So in that sense, this is uh, a sort of a well-familiar terrain, how Secretary Austin would emphasize partnership with, uh, with regional countries. But I think in terms of the Chinese defense minister, there's a lot more expectations because this is the first time uh, we'll be hearing from him. And so therefore, there's more uh, an anticipation of what he will say, how he would say it. And I think this is where what's interesting from General Lee's speech is that I think Southeast Asians are looking at two different things. One is the body language, the tenor, the tone of the delivery. And the second is the message. The message, I think in general, to be honest, it's nothing new. Uh, certain red lines have been expressed before over Taiwan, how China sort of um, 
I have a list of problems and issues with the United States. Uh, these are things that we've, we've heard before, and we certainly are aware that no amount of criticism we have uh, of the contradictions and, 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 and the lines taken uh, by the Chinese minister will change anything in terms of its behavior uh, towards us in the region. But I thought the tone and tenor part was a bit interesting because in some of my conversations uh, with the Southeast Asian uh, participants, some of them actually described the tone and tenor of, of, of the speech as a your friendly neighborhood uncle trying to preach to you about uh, the openness of the current um, uh, um, position, how we're willing to talk. Oh, but uh, by the way, don't cross certain lines or things will get very bad. But going back again to the neighborhood uncle that we are willing to talk and we're willing uh, to listen. And um, as Bastian mentioned, at the end of um, of the session where he tried to cut, uh, to cut John Chipman off because he wanted to express uh, and, and emphasize that he's willing uh, to talk. But I think from, um, from a lot of the key issues on maritime security, South China Sea, you will also hear uh, those uh, uh, wondering, for example, you mentioned earlier about how China made it a, a point in the speech that these troubles only happen in Chinese waters and, and, and not others. Uh, you will find some Indonesians and even Vietnamese to some extent uh, who would argue that the U.S. freedom of navigation operations were also targeted at them in the past as well. So in that sense, I think China struck the right tone and the right uh, tenor, uh, but the message is something that we've always heard, and it's something that uh, won't change uh, in terms of its its actual behavior towards us. Nigel, finally to you, I mean, you, you come to these events in Asia principally as an expert on, on Russia and, and its near surrounds, but what did you make both of our Chinese and American friends? The point that uh, really struck me, and it, it builds on one of Bastin's observations earlier is, of course, the, uh, the failure uh, out of character for uh, the Shangri-La Dialogues of the Chinese and American defense ministers to have their own bilateral. And why was that? That was for Russian-related reasons. Uh, it was a consequence of the fact that the United States had imposed sanctions on uh, Minister Li Xiangfu uh, in his previous role as a consequence of an agreement he had made with uh, Ross Abaron Export, the, the Russian arms uh, exporter. And I think it was really interesting. We might get into this a bit later. It shows how increasingly uh, Russia and uh, American relations are intersecting with Russia and uh, China relations. So um, there's, there's something important there. Uh, Austin uh, did, of course, acknowledge that there had been a cordial handshake. And uh, for the historians, that perhaps recalls the the failure in, in 1954 at the Geneva summit of John Foster Dulles to, to shake hands with Zhao Enlai, his, uh, his, his Chinese counterpart. And the other point I'd make, and I say this as a former diplomat, is that it's the intense interest in this issue of whether uh, the two ministers would have uh, a face-to-face -face meeting uh, just brings home the enduring significance of personal diplomacy. So um, the pandemic, of course, uh, spread practices of virtual working across many, many domains. In addition to that, we're all wondering and worrying how artificial intelligence is disrupting traditional forms and modes of work. And yet in diplomacy, it still matters and will always matter whether or not these two humans are sitting together in the, in the same space, embodied representatives of their countries, breathing the same 
air in the same room and interacting in that most personal way. It's a good point, Nigel. I mean, it, we should also say that uh, although there was one bilateral meeting which didn't happen, there were many hundreds that did. Uh, there was some speculation as to whether or not it might be possible for the United States and China to meet somewhere further down the food chain, perhaps at, uh, at the level of senior officials. That, as far as we're aware, didn't happen either. Um, however, we did have on the Friday evening, um, not an in-person meeting, but a, an in-person keynote address from the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, kicking off the event in good style. Virla, maybe I can turn to you uh, for, for a brief reflection on that. What do you think uh, Prime Minister Albanese was trying to achieve and did he end up achieving it? It's been interesting to, you know, of course, see uh, Australia make some uh, pretty big announcements over the last uh, few years. Of course, AUKUS being uh, central to that and that having caused some uh, level of anxiety in the region, notably amongst some countries in Southeast Asia uh, and, of course, China as well. Um, and more generally, the, the Australia-China relationship um, seeking to be put back on track in some sort of positive direction. And I think that um, Albanese's speech really spoke to that. You know, he spoke, first of all, um, about China, um, not only the concern around the lack of guardrails and the need for that, uh, that stability should be achieved through collective responsibility uh, and that dialogue was required for that. And, and I thought a particularly great moment was when he said that the silence of the diplomatic deep freeze only breeds suspicion and it only makes it easier for nations to attribute motive to misunderstanding. That very much pointed towards the current tensions between the United States and China. And Australia is clearly trying to send a message uh, pretty, pretty um boldly that, that these two countries need to get back to uh, the, the dialogue table. Um, but also, you know, trying to reassure uh, the region that Australia itself is not being uh, belligerent in any way, not through AUKUS, um, but also in terms of its relationship with China. And that uh, multilateralism remains incredibly important, even if Australia is engaging in these forms of minilateral uh, groupings. He mentioned ASEAN and the importance of this, historical importance of this. But he also mentioned uh, the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And here I think it was interesting, again, to see the link between European security and Indo-Pacific security when he mentioned that in very strong words as well, uh, the, the unacceptable fact that North Korea and Russia have both threatened to use nuclear force and how destabilizing that is. So, you know, Australia, despite some, some major defense announcements, really reaching out towards the region to say multilateralism is where this region finds stability in addition to deterrence. And we are here to have that dialogue. And Evan, a similar question to you from last time then. Uh, it's Malaysia and Indonesia that have objected most strenuously to AUKUS, uh, claiming that what the Australians say is a technology and capability partnership uh, is in fact in some ways um, a form of nuclear proliferation. Do you think Albanese won over his critics? Yeah, I think certainly the message throughout the speech, I think uh, it's certainly hitting all the right tunes, as Rila said, in terms of ASEAN centrality and so forth, the importance of multilateralism and even guardrails and, and AUKUS in terms of its transparency um, uh, and trying to pair deterrence, not just in terms of capabilities, but also relationship and partnership as the reassurance part. I thought that in terms of him trying to, 
to dance to everyone's tune by emphasizing multilateralisms, ASEAN centrality, uh, the fact that deterrence should be paired with reassurance. These are not new themes. And somehow for me, the speech became less memorable because I thought that the speech has been hyped up over the last month or so as kind of the defining speech for of, of Australia's vision for regional order. And we've heard bits and pieces of those visions before, but I just don't feel the speech to be particularly impressive in terms of a clear position strategy and, and, and policy. No, I think there were, it, was, it was a speech that had a, you know, some positive reaction, but also it, it tried to cover a lot of ground. And so it's hard to strike out an argument when you do that. I think that's fair comment. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other talking points of the event. Nigel, I'll come back to you here. So one of the most visible, interesting figures uh, at the Shangri-La Dialogue this year was the Ukrainian Defense Minister Reznikov. Uh, he came with a, a reasonably sizable Ukrainian delegation, including his deputy defense minister. It was also his first trip to Asia uh, in the role. Uh, and indeed, for some time, he told me, uh, what did you make of his presence? And how did you find the Russia-Ukraine conflict in general? As you say, Reznikov was a visible, confident, uh, expansive, and witty uh, presence. The uh, The session that he spoke at was extremely uh, well attended. Uh, he made a very strong impression. Uh, and I think it was important that we had a Ukrainian presence in person this year. We had President Zelensky beam into us last year, of course. So this is a, a developing theme for the dialogue. In the margins, Mr. Reznikov had uh, lots of bilateral meetings, some of which uh, have been reported publicly, others not yet, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, they've been well reported in the Ukrainian media as well already. Uh, so uh, he, in particular, I think his, his uh, visit uh, reflects a trend in Ukrainian diplomacy and indeed more broadly in Western diplomacy to uh, redouble the efforts to engage broader global audiences, in particular what we call uh, now the Global South, and that follows President Zelensky's own recent visit to uh, the G7 summit in Hiroshima uh, via Saudi Arabia. Uh, there was a particular moment that uh, I think struck a lot of people in, in, in the session he spoke at. I asked him a question about the course of uh, Russian-Chinese uh, relations, in particular whether China's attitude towards Russia was becoming more sympathetic and favorable in, in recent months. And in response to that question, he asked a question in turn, uh, not to me, but to his neighbor, uh, Ambassador Tuai Tiankai, uh, and, and said to him, I understand that in the Chinese language, there is no simple word for brother. There's only older brother and younger brother. So tell me, which word do you use now when you're describing Russia? Uh, and that, uh, that got a, a, a lot of uh, sympathetic laughter. So um, I think that was uh, uh, capped off a very effective performance from him. And did you find that Russia-Ukraine um, percolated around other aspects of the, the conference? Yes, very much. So uh, we saw this last year, of course, uh, and uh, Shangri-La 2022 happened just fairly soon after Russia's invasion. So there's still a sense of the shock of the new and people uh, responding to something that had only really just begun to unfold. This year, of course, uh, took place sometime after the first anniversary of the invasion. So in a sense, it was a chronic 
problem rather than acute one, but no less urgent uh, for that. Uh, and we saw a, a, a reprise of the, the concerns last year um, about the implications for Asia of, uh, of this war in Europe. Firstly, that any uh, uh, violation of the basic principle of sovereignty, any uh, uh, gross violation of that basic rule of the game, would set a dangerous precedent elsewhere. Uh, Europe's today could be Asia's tomorrow. Uh, the second concern, again reiterated this year, was about food price commodity inflation. But there were two other ways, I think, in which the, the theatres intersected. Uh, one was the nuclear issue. Uh, and I think this, if anything, resonated more now as a consequence of recent developments in Asia itself, in particular North Korea's progress in, uh, in uh, uh, this development of uh, ballistic missiles, its threats to conduct further nuclear tests. So that heightened the fear that was shared by China, I think, that uh, a nuclear escalation in Europe, again, can set damaging precedents. And the final kind of read across, it seemed to me, it came up in a couple of the sessions, was the, the worry about uh, Western budgets, defense budgets, and whether they might be strained. So new commitments now, the transformation of European security means more spending uh, on defense in Europe at the same time that Europe, for uh, security reasons, is taking a closer interest in Asia with, with implications for defense spending there. Is that a, a circle that cannot be squared? Is that, does that put too much potential uh, uh, strain on Western resources? It's an interesting point. Yeah, uh, let me turn to one other uh, big talking point. Uh, Evan, I'll come back to you on this. Uh, in one of the plenary sessions on Saturday, we had speech, as is uh, normal, from the Indonesian Defence Minister, uh, Pak Prabowo. Uh, he surprised everyone, including, we think, some of his own officials, by announcing a peace plan uh, for Ukraine. He certainly surprised the Ukraine delegation uh, and the European High Representative, Josep Borrell, with whom he was sharing a stage, that the peace plan uh, proposed a ceasefire and then what amounted to a demilitarized zone uh, of uh, somewhere between 15 and 30 kilometers um, uh, between the two sides. Uh, Evan, what was going on there? I think we now know uh, in the last 24 hours after we hear reactions from the Indonesian president and the foreign minister that this was a solo initiative of the defense minister. It did not represent the position and strategy of the Indonesian government. And in fact, the president said earlier today that he might actually call on, on Minister Prabowo to the palace to explain his plan. So it's certainly, I think, clear that this is not something that has been properly uh, communicated uh, within uh, uh, the Indonesian government, let alone with Russia and certainly not uh, with, uh, with Ukraine. Um, but I think this highlights a bigger problem, uh, one in terms of the Ukraine uh, and Russia war itself, where Jokowi himself uh, went to Russia um, and Ukraine at the beginning of the war with a least, uh, with a less developed uh, a mediation plan of some kind. But the domestic narrative was that Jokowi would attempt to bring peace to both warring parties, and of course that did not turn out as expected as well. So there's a history, I think, in this particular context of of least. Uh, developed plans are being put forward without without clear preparation. But more broadly, I think this represents a deeper, I'm afraid, 
uh, strategic pathology in Indonesia's defense diplomacy, where for a long time, I think Indonesia is accustomed uh, to wait and see for great powers to woo uh, the country uh, because of its geostrategic uh, importance and geopolitical have, but we're not really accustomed to putting our own resources and strategy to the test in major geopolitical events. And certainly over the last uh, seven to eight years under Jokowi, the focus has always been on economic relationship, not geopolitical maneuvering. So I think this is where the disconnect between defense policy and diplomacy, I think, unfortunately, comes at the highest stage last weekend. Bastian, Maybe I can come back to you. So if uh, Proboa was keeping us on our toes with an unexpected peace plan, uh, we also had an unusually strong delegation of European ministers. Uh, so uh, Germany, the United Kingdom, as I mentioned, uh, the high representative, Josep Borrell, uh, but also Prime Minister Kallas of Estonia, uh, who, who attended the dialogue. Could you reflect a little bit on what you think the European ministers were trying to do and whether there are any highlights? It is important to point out that there was a strong showing. Uh, I think six uh, defense European ministers spoke in, in the various sessions, as and as you said, alongside the EU's high representative for foreign affairs and security policy, Borrell, and, and Kaya Kallas, the prime minister of Estonia. Perhaps I'll start with the UK's Ben Wallace, who who talked about how uh, Britain's interests fall as much into the Indo-Pacific region as they do into the Euro-Atlantic region. Uh, but what I thought was interesting about this speech was that it was uh, fairly heavy on foreign policy content, but but maybe a bit a bit lighter than a lot of people had uh, hoped uh, or, or expected uh, on the defense content. Um, maybe that is due to the fact that the new defense command paper, the new British defense command paper, is due to be released uh, later this this month. Um, I thought uh, Kaya Kallas's speech was very strong, making the case that Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine was was an imperial war of conquest, and that many observers and indeed many Russians uh, overlook and forget and do not confront uh, Russia's imperial past, which now uh, presents itself in this in this in this new guise. While I personally thought uh, it was a compelling speech, it had that personal element. Uh, how she recalled how her her own grandmother and her own mother uh, were deported uh, to Siberia uh, 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 back in the day. But I but I think while I thought it was a compelling speech, I'm not sure that it landed with uh, delegates uh, in the region to whom that uh, war. Uh, against Ukraine still seems, that's at least my impression, talking to some of the people in the room, seems a lot, a lot further away um, than perhaps some of the European Europeans hoped or 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 thought it would be. Um, so I'm not sure it got it got through um, uh, in the to the degree that I I, I at least thought it, uh, her speech would would deserve. Um, the other, if I can just mention one other element. Uh, uh, Boris Pistorius, the new or relatively new uh, uh, German defense minister, uh, he almost like a you know an aside in his speech, but he alluded to the fact that Germany's arms export policy, which is traditionally rather restrictive, might have to change into a more permissive policy as Germany is revisiting uh, the uh, foundation of its own uh, strategic choices, but also the interactions and ambitions it has further afield, including in the in the Indo-Pacific. And the minister 
uh, from Singapore traveled on to Indonesia and and India, uh, and he had uh, a few defense industrial representatives uh, in his delegation. I think that's a potential shift, even though it's uh, perhaps uh, still a little bit theoretical at this point, but it's a potential shift that will be of interest to uh, a lot of countries in the region, but it'll also be of interest to uh, a lot of defense industrial players, I imagine, uh, who were also uh, present at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Verla, you cover Europe and its adventures in the Indo-Pacific reasonably closely. So if you have anything to add to that, please do. I also wondered if you noticed anything uh, in the speeches uh, given by the ministers from Japan and the Republic of Korea. I actually thought that um, the speech by Joseph Burrell, uh, the HRVP um, uh, of the External Action Service um, of the EU, was actually very, very strong. Um, surprisingly so, because he doesn't always hit the mark when it comes to Asia. So, um, you know, I thought his point that um, the region was facing uh, both bipolarity and multipolarity was very interesting and something that um, might have spoken to countries in the region who fear getting caught between U.S.-China tensions and are looking for, you know, a third way, so to speak, or third partners to engage with who don't necessarily, uh, you know, risk having them be pulled then into one direction or the other. Um I think also his point at the end was very strong when he said that um, it is very easy to end the war in Ukraine. That is not actually a, a difficult thing to do. Um, if uh, Europe uh, and other countries were to stop militarily supporting Ukraine, then the war would end immediately. It would also, however, mean uh, that it would be a um, piece uh, of uh, the cemeteries, the piece of the surrender, the piece of the stronger. Uh, and so it's not about uh, whether to end the war or, or if the war can end, but how the war should end. And for a region that I think, you know, um, it might be feeling wary of the economic consequences of a, a, a conflict so far away, um, this was an incredibly important point to make. Now, when it comes to the um, the speeches by the Japanese and uh, South Korean defense ministers, interesting similarities and differences. For Japan, very clearly the focus was on China, both uh, military assertiveness as well as economic coercion. Uh, for South Korea, a, an entire focus on the DPRK. Um, but interestingly, uh, a thread that ran through both was firstly, the fact that uh, Russia, you know, tying again the Euro-Atlantic and the Indo-Pacific together, neither Russia nor the DPRK should be allowed to succeed. And then secondly, that these dynamics that we're seeing in the ratcheting up of tensions and the use of uh, this kind of unacceptable force, um, be it, you know, for example, uh, in the case of North Korea, um, having conducted 34 or so missile tests just last year, um, that this is leading to uh, a greater sense and desire of, uh, uh, of enhanced deterrence by countries in the region, including, of course, South Korea and Japan themselves. Japan with Counter-Strike, uh, South Korea with its closer a, a relationship with the United States now, with the United States um, uh, being able to and, and, and saying that it will send uh, nuclear submarines uh, to South Korea once in a while. So these developments that we're seeing in, in you know, what is seen to be unacceptable military um, assertiveness, uh, indeed aggression, be it, you know, the, the threat to use nuclear force or be it the fact that uh, North Korea 
launched 34 ballistic missiles just last year, that this is creating an action-reaction dynamic of countries like Japan and South Korea building their own their own deterrence capabilities. But then secondly, also, that despite all this, these countries are still looking for diplomacy and opportunities for dialogue. Um, you know, Japan noted that it has set up uh, a crisis hotline, communication hotline with China uh, and um, South Korea, uh, less so in terms of its outreach to the DPRK, but in any case, still looking for multilateral um, multilateral convergence, multilateral unity to try uh, and resolve uh, these tensions. And in the case of South Korea, to stop uh, North Korea in its tracks through multilateral efforts. Excellent. When the Shangri-La Dialogue closed uh, on Sunday lunchtime, uh, those of us who'd worked hard on it, I think, were you know a little sad to see the event go. And we must also now close this podcast. I would like to invite each of my panelists uh, to reflect on one thing that they noticed at the dialogue, either a, a particular minister's speech or a, a scene, a thing that happened that they think our listeners might be uh, might be interested in. So I'll go in the the order in which we started. So Bastian, what caught your eye? Yeah, I wanted to mention something that that perhaps uh, people who couldn't be there uh, are just not aware of, namely that that in the uh, you know, in some of these meetings, bilateral meetings that go on uh, over the course of the weekend, uh, a number of statements of intent and memorandum of understandings were signed. Bilateral arrangements were made. Policy was made in the margins. So there's, for example, a statement of intent between uh, New Zealand um, uh, 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 and Japan uh, on uh, defense cooperation, maritime security, uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and climate change in the Pacific Islands region. So that's a, uh, a an outcome or or, or a, at least a, uh, an event that happened. And, and Singapore and Japan also signed an agreement concerning the transfer of defense equipment and technology uh, uh, between the two countries. So there's this, you know, it's, it's just it's just an element of uh, again. Uh, thickening the threat around these uh, bilateral um, uh, defense-related agreements uh, uh, that are perhaps not quite as dramatic as uh, reciprocal access agreements that we've seen in the past or more recently uh, a few have been signed. But but nevertheless, an important uh, element uh, of the Shangri-La Dialogue that perhaps is not as visible and as public uh, as uh, some of the discussions, but nevertheless, I think it's an important element of that defense diplomatic activity that we've just witnessed. Yeah, it's a very good point. There were, it was almost hard to keep up with everything that was going on in the background. There was a meeting of the five powers defense agreement between Malaysia, Malaysia, Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Uh, there was an announcement by the United States, Japan, and DPRK on information sharing, a whole range of different things that were going on in the background that, that other people might not have noticed. So I think, I think it's a good point. Um, Viola, what caught your eye? For me, it was really the battle of the narratives between what China um, was putting forward and then how European countries, and in particular, uh, in the case that I want to raise, um, Dutch Defense Minister Gasha Ollingen, when Tsui uh, Tin Kai, the former Chinese ambassador to the United States, effectively said that Europe's uh, Europe's uh, approach to managing security in its own region had failed disastrously, um, Gasha responded, um, that uh, that the war in Ukraine is in fact not the result of mismanagement, but that it's the result 
of not respecting the way that we want to manage security in Europe. And I think that really just struck at the core of, you know, what we've seen so far uh, this in all these speeches um, by, uh, by the Chinese interlocutors, but then also um, by questions from Chinese participants, which was um, a very strong narrative of we have solutions, we have a model and a way forward, we know how to create stability in this part of the world, uh, and Europe and the United States are the ones who don't. Uh, and I thought her response in that respect was uh, incredibly strong and, and very, very important. It's also worth noting, I think, that in the point that Bastian made, the bilaterals, that China was the hot ticket and people were keeping up a, a running list of who they had heard the Chinese were meeting with. So the Chinese did not meet with the Americans, but they did meet with the, they also did not meet with the Canadians, but they did meet with the Brits, the New Zealanders, the European Union, uh, the Australians and sundry others. Uh, Li Shangfu, I think, mentioned that he had 11 bilateral meetings in all. So he was trying to display that he had been meeting with most people, even if not the Americans. Evan, what caught your eye? Just like last year, uh, this year, I thought that what's interesting is that small states actually stole the show. Uh, we see this uh, with regards to the Timor-Leste President Horta, uh, but as well as uh, the Fijian minister, who both talk about the importance of equality in the global rules-based order, issues like climate change, economic development. And these are all things that are not necessarily about the U.S.-China competition. So if I were um, uh, the listeners, I would actually also look out for uh, the amazing speeches and delivery uh, of the smaller states rather than just about U.S. and China. Nigel, final thought to you. What, uh, what caught your eye beyond your normal area of focus? Yes, there was a moment which brings together three of the themes we've discussed already. So uh, Ukraine Defense Minister uh, Reznikov, the meshing of European Asian theaters and the question of so-called peace plans to uh, resolve the, uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. So uh, Reznikov was asked uh, what he thought about, uh, about such plans, uh, whether impromptu and Indonesian or, or more formulated and Chinese. And his response was, uh, no, thank you. We don't need anyone to mediate for us in the war. We need to win the war. Uh, but then, if it's a question of facilitating some sort of post-war peaceful arrangement uh, with Russia to define the terms of that future relationship, that could be helpful and could play a part. And he said Singapore would be a good place to have that, and the Shangri-La dialogue would be a good place to have that. So just to reprise that point that Bastian made about the defense diplomacy significance of the dialogue, perhaps we can um, uh, consider the prospect of something as momentous as a Ukrainian, future Ukrainian relationship with Russia being forged at a future dialogue. Very well put, Nigel. Uh, for myself, the, the moment that really struck home to me actually was nothing to do with the formal part of the dialogue. It was when it had closed. Uh, we walked back upstairs after the end of the, the final plenary, and I happened upon a scene in one of the meeting rooms in which Singapore's Minister Ung uh, was gathering to thank all of the staff at the Shangri-La Hotel. There were some uh, 200 of them gathered uh, in one of the rooms upstairs, uh, chefs, front of house staff, serving staff who, who de delivered the food for the meals. And he gave a, a short but quite moving uh, a statement about how 
the people in the hotel that over the last 20 years uh, has housed the Shangri-La Dialogue were a big part of making the, the various ministers and chiefs of defense and heads of defense departments feel welcome and uh, also well-fed and watered. I thought it was quite a touching moment uh, and one that makes us uh, remember uh, for those of us who organized the event, how many others uh, also contribute to the success of the dialogue and all the diplomacy that goes with it. So I will end at that point. So that concludes our discussion. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And unlike an Indonesian peace plan for Ukraine, we hope that this one lasts more than a couple of days. For more in-depth analysis, transcripts, and recordings of the Shangri-La Dialogue this year, you can go onto the IISS website, or you can look at what was happening on our Twitter and LinkedIn accounts. And as always, you can find more information in our show notes. As we say for every episode, please do follow, rate, and subscribe Sound Strategic wherever you happen to be listening to your podcasts and to keep up to date with future episodes. Thank you to my four colleagues and see you all next time.